my name is Patricia King and today I have an exciting message for you to hear stop what are you thinking we can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting <clears throat> hi folks uh, Chris Roseberry here just want to remind you fighting for the faith is listener supported radio that means we depend upon you your generous gifts and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you and to the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, November 30th, 2011. Mm-mm. Ah, December will be here before we know it, like tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's how it works. 30 dates, half September, April, June, and November. All the rest have 31, except for February, which has 28. Yeah, that Mother Goose rhyme has served me well over my life. Makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose, well, of biblical discernment. The goal of which? Help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is, well, sadly, there is no shortage of really goofy, silly things being said about God and, well, apparently being done for God in some senses. Um, And all of it is just really silly and needless. Why? Because, listen, the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. It's pretty simple to get, and it's not hard to get and comprehend, and cre- no creativity is necessary, just faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word, uh, which requires a pastor to pay attention to nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives, things like that, the grammar of what's written in the text. Uh, you can go with the sure thing, and a lot of people are off focusing on well, crazy things, uh, stuff that doesn't make any sense, uh, fanciful uh, biblical interpretations uh, based upon verses ripped out of context, uh, bizarre interpretations based upon dreams and visions and things like that. And yeah, I, you don't trust me when I tell you, you can't trust that stuff. What you can trust? God's Word. Uh, what you can't trust is somebody mishandling it, and you got to learn how to listen for when somebody's preaching it correctly. A, a good way of telling, are they telling you about Jesus? You're going, 
what if they're preaching through the Old Testament? It's about Jesus. Yeah, see, Jesus himself taught us that in the uh, Road to Emmaus story. So, okay, so here we are. Those are just my initial thoughts. Here we are. And, uh, you know, this is like one of my least favorite times of the year, not the Christmas season itself, but like some of the initial weeks leading up to Christmas has nothing to do with uh, Advent or anything like that. It has to do with just the crazy stories that year after year after year after year that we get in the media. And it and, you know, listen, you know, when it comes to the Christmas wars, um, yeah, I'm burnt out. Um, I just don't feel any need whatsoever to um to punish you know a, a particular local retailer because they didn't greet me with the proper uh holiday christmas thing greeting going on thing yeah i i believe me when i tell you i do believe that there is a war for christmas just i don't think that the battle lines the really true battle lines the true front lines on the war for christmas they, I don't even think they go through Walmart. I, in fact, I'm fairly convinced that those lines don't go anywhere near Walmart, Walgreens, uh, your local mall, or anything like that. The real war for Christmas is being waged in your church. And uh, we're going to talk about that today. So I've got a, a Christmas Wars update. And... Uh, <laughs> I've selected the appropriate music and things like that for, you know, to segue into a Christmas Wars update or the War on Christmas update. Uh, hopefully this will not be something I have to discuss on a regular basis, but already the, it's like there's a template out there. Uh, have you noticed this about some news agencies, some news outlets? It's like every single year it's the same story. It's just a template. And it's like it's like one of those Mad Libs, you know, where you you fill in the blank, you know. It's, it's so war on Christmas continues, you know, and and then there's a blank, and it says, uh, and and underneath the blank it says fill in the date, you know, to, you know, which, what's the year? Twenty eleven. Okay, well, war on Christmas continues. Blank uh, to, for two thousand eleven. Okay, and then it, it'll say. Uh, today in the Christmas Wars, the such and such group, and you have to fill in the name of the group. The such and such group has announced their this year's naughty list of retailers who d who refuse to say Merry Christmas. And this year's list include, and then they got a bunch of blanks. All you got to do is fill in the blanks, and then and then you presto, you've got instant news story. And uh, you know, just the older I get, the the more I go, wait wait a, wait a second, um. Everything's the same in the story except for a few words. It's the same exact story and and it's all designed to kind of get everybody up into a fluster and you know and to to ruffle their feathers and and cause you know it, it's like it perpetuates just a complete feeling of disunity and disease and it's like oh man. Okay, so here's the deal. Okay, I will be participating in the war on Christmas this year, but I've moved the battle lines. I could care less. I don't care what the lady at Walgreens says. And uh, if I run out of Motrin because I've got a splitting headache today, I do, actually, I do have a splitting headache. I actually smashed my head. Oh, <laughs> long story. I, I've got, I've got a, I've got a knot on my noggin. I, <clears throat> anyway, and uh, it, it's resulted in me having a pretty decent headache all day long. Yes, maybe I have a concussion, and and uh, and my you know my critics will sit there and go, oh thank God, it's a sign from God. See, he should have prayed a wall stand still prayer so he wouldn't hit his head. Yeah, 
Anyway, so so listen. So if I run out of Motrin, you know, because I got a splitting headache, and I run down there, and and you know, and I see that they've got all of their different Christmas tchotchke kind of things, you know, in in their Christmas aisle, and I walk up there with my bottle of Motrin, and put it on the counter, and she rings it up and says, you know, it'll be such and such amount of money, and and then goes, Happy Holidays. I mean, I guarantee you, I am not even going to bat an eyelash. I, I just don't care. She could, I mean, see, here's the deal. Okay. The kind of point that I've made before, but I kind of want to reiterate this. Are you ready? Okay. Here it is. I live in the United States. In the United States, we have freedom of religion. Um, we have freedom of belief. You, you can believe whatever you want. And so here's the deal. Okay. Um, normally when I go to Walgreens or CVS or, you know, the local market, a lot of times they hire younger kids. Um, and so, you know, you got to understand, put a little visual around this, okay? That uh, when I go to Walgreens and I put the bottle of Motrin down, I've got a gal wearing a Walgreens uniform, but her nails are black. She's got piercings coming out of bizarre places on her face, and her hair has been obviously dyed. And she's got the smoky eyes thing going on, and she's kind of looking at me through her her black hair. Okay, so here's the deal. Okay, <laughs> even if she were to say to me, "Have a merry Christmas," I'm probably not gonna go. Oh, look, it's my sister in Christ. You know, you understand what I'm saying? So it's it's not that I'm judging by appearances, but sometimes those appearances are meant to send message send messages. And so, you know, a lot of times the kids at the local markets, uh, you know, they like sending messages that, that, that their big thing right now is that they're not going to conform to anything except for nonconformity. And that's the only thing they're going to conform to is nonconformity. And and and, and it's, it's like, you know, seriously, I'm supposed to get bent out of shape because some local girl, uh, some teenager who's uh, just recently graduated from high school isn't telling me Merry Christmas at Walgreens. So what? I mean, really? This is what I'm supposed to get upset about. I just, you know. So <clears throat> now that you know how I feel, I'm going to kind of turn the tables here because, I, you know, I, I'll talk about this a little bit more later. But that's just kind of the setup for uh, the segment that we're going to be doing. Uh, the other day I wanted to get to a Patricia King segment, uh, you know, our, our, you know, talking about the upcoming food shortage in the world. Apparently the, Somebody's put this on their calendar, and you know we 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 might want to check with the third eagle of the apocalypse to see if if he's put his stamp of approval on this prophetic prediction regarding uh, an upcoming food shortage. Uh, but uh, Patricia King is going to uh, give us some, I'm sure, sage advice regarding this. So we've got we've got the Patricia King update. I I wasn't able to get to it the other day, and uh, and so I'm I'm kind of you know that, that's a balance of a debt that I owe. The listeners here at Fighting for the Faith. Um, I've got a Joel Osteen update, and uh, and then you know this new story that, that is actually going to go along with that. And then for our sermon review today, okay, I, you know I checked in the uh, the archives of Fighting for the Faith. I you know I spent a little bit of time doing some database research, and uh, and when I went into my database research uh, in the archives of Fighting for the Faith, I was looking for particular. Keywords, for instance, like right now, I've got the database up. Hang on, and and uh, I'm looking for a, a keyword, and the and the keyword is Grinch. And what I did uh, when I when I did the keyword search, I discovered that uh, to date, um, um, the three and a half years that we've been doing this program, 
I have not yet reviewed a sermon from a Christian church or a church that calls itself a Christian church um, that um, that is a review of the movie The Grinch. And uh, and so uh, you know, since this is obviously a glaring omission that's uh, that's in my repertoire of sermon reviews, I will be correcting that. Um, and uh, there will be an omission no longer. In in the future, when you search the archives of Fighting for the Faith and you type in the word Grinch, uh, one of the search results that will come up is this episode of Fighting for the Faith where I will have reviewed a um, Christmas sermon from a seeker-driven church based on the movie The Grinch. And so we'll be, we'll be doing that in hour number two today because... If we're going to be talking about so much about Christmas, we might as well start putting in some of the um, uh, Christmas preaching that uh, goes on in some of the seeker-driven churches because, you know, hey, we're all about being relevant. So with that, you know, do, do I sound flustered? You know what I think it is? It's because I bashed my head today. Anyway, if, uh, if you want to make yourself comfortable, feel free to kick up your heels. This is a fine way to listen to Fighting for the Faith. If you are experiencing cooler weather, fuzzy bunny slippers are a fine, fine way to enhance your listener experience. And, of course, your listener experience is, like, vitally important to me. And, of course, if you want to enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, drunkenness is a sin. You don't want to be enslaved to a gift. That's just kind of silly. But, uh, you know, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, which requires me to do this, you know, so. Okay, so the burning question that I, I'm sure that all of you are asking this Christmas season, and well, Advent, uh, uh, for those of you who follow a liturgical church calendar, is uh, whether or not there is a coming food shortage. I mean, I, in fact, you know, frequently while I'm walking down the street, you know, um, what I've found is is that people will stop me, and they'll say to me, "Chris, Chris, what do you think about the upcoming food shortage?" And, you know, of course, uh, you know, I've been asked this question so many times that, you know, I've got I've just got some standard answers that uh, I have ready at a moment's notice. And oddly enough, so does Patricia King. It's just have you have you been walk ever walking down the street, you know, and somebody just stop you and ask you what your plans are for the upcoming food shortage? Well, if you're looking for, you know, like a ready answer, um, and you know, and and, a, and well, a spiritualish way of framing your your answer. Well, then n- nobody better than Patricia King could come up with an answer for that. So here is Patricia King, and her answer to the question, which she apparently just like me, you know, I, I get asked this all the time. She gets asked this question frequently too. But um, he, he, here we go. Here's Patricia King. Many people have been asking me, is a food shortage coming? And they said, you know, prophets are telling us to store up food because there's a food shortage coming. What do you think? Is it coming? And, um, and isn't that weird? I mean, just, I just find it just a sheer coincidence that, you know, happens to me all the time that, you know, I'm just walking down the street and people will stop me. Chris, what do you think of the upcoming food shortage? Is there a food shortage coming? It's, it's weird that this is some common ground that Patricia King and I have in common. I I just say to you that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, a food shortage is not coming to you. Why? Because well, now there's some good news. Okay, so because I hadn't even thought about this. I mean, 
So the next time you're walking down the street, maybe you'll be shopping at your local grocery store and a friend stops you and says, hey, is there a food shortage coming? All you have to do is tell them, listen, listen, listen. If you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about it. It's going to skip right over you. No, okay, really, okay. You're a covenant child, and he's going to meet all of your needs. It might not be in the way that you've been used to, because I know that there's shakings that are taking place in the earth and in the world system, but did you know that the earth is actually groaning, waiting for you, the mature sons of God, to rise up and take your place to set them free from captivity? That <laughs> No, I hadn't heard that. means that wherever you are, there should be just a harvest of goodness everywhere, everywhere you go. <laughs> so, okay, so here's the deal. Um, apparently, did not know this, um, that wherever, if you're a covenant child, wherever you go, there should be like a harvest of goodness everywhere you go. So... So, I mean, I would assume that that kind of means that, you know, if you walk outside and it's winter in your neck of the woods, you know, that uh, winter never actually hits your house and that your grass grows year round and you know, your fruit trees bear fruit all the time. There's a harvest of goodness going on in your neighborhood. Um, that's a sure sign that you're a covenant child because, you know, the earth is groaning and waiting for you to mature and and you to set it free from its... Okay. Whatever pertains to you, whatever your life uh, touches, there should be a harvest of goodness. And why, you know, this, sometimes I watch Patricia King and I go, how is it that anybody takes this woman seriously? I mean, why is anybody thinking that this woman is teaching anything remotely related to biblical Christianity? As a believer, we don't have to fear any shortage at any time because God is the God of all plenty. I mean, look at Israel going through the wilderness. They didn't have any gardens that they were growing, that's for sure. But God opened up the heavens and poured out bread in abundance. There was no food shortage for them, not under God's system. The only shortage they had was when they were under the world system. But when they came under God's kingdom system, there was no shortage at all. Yeah, in fact, if I remember correctly, I think the big gripe about the Israelites wasn't about the quantity of food. It was the, uh, the well, it was the same menu every day. <sighs> yeah, and where in the Bible, Patricia, does the, uh, the, the example of what happened about the manna in the wilderness somehow become normative then for the Christian? Because when I, when I look through church history, I, I hear that uh, Christians, well... Uh, there's plenty of them who've died of starvation. There's plenty of them who've died from pa plague and pestilence and war and famines. And, um, hmm, it just, it just a cursory look at the scriptures reveal that there's, there's an abundant lack of um, promises that Christians will never suffer. Hmm. This is a time for the body of Christ to start thinking kingdom and living kingdom. The earth is good. That's right. If your if your fruit trees aren't bearing fruit, you know, twelve months out of the year, even though you might live somewhere in the suburbs of Chicago, well, you're probably not a Christian. Going to shake, and the world system is going to shake. The whole 
um, structure of buying and selling, it's going to be shaken. And yes, there might be shortages here and there. It talks about wars, rumors of wars, famines, droughts everywhere. Jesus even warned us about that happening in the end times. But if you're living according to the abundance of God, you will not have a shortage of anything. You have to live in faith for what he says he will give. Remember in Elijah's day? Yeah, I do. Yeah, uh-huh. And there was a famine and there was no food and he went into Zarephath and there was a widow there. And yeah, I'm familiar with the story. She was all set to make her last meal with a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil and feed her son and then go die. That's what she said. I'm going to eat my last meal and die. Yeah. And Elijah said, no, don't do that. Just make me a little bit first and... So she did, yeah. and and then she had enough left over for him, and, so, and it just kept replenishing and replenishing and replenishing. Yeah, I'm familiar with the miracle. You do, you are aware, by the way. Uh, just just a historical note here: uh, when the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, you know, remember they were fed by God daily via manna, except for on the Sabbath. Okay, well, what happened on the eve of the Sabbath is is that the people of Israel would have to collect enough manna for two days. There was no manna collection going on on the Sabbath. But uh, God provided for the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness for 40 years. And once they crossed the Jordan, um, the, the, the book of Joshua records for us the fact that the manna stopped. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then the, the, the story about the flour and oil of the widow of Zarephath that did not end, no Bible passage anywhere, anywhere promises that same thing for you or for me. That was a very unique miracle. Um, in fact, there, there was only three people who got to benefit from that miracle in the middle of that famine. And that was Elijah, the widow, and her son. Everybody else? Yeah, they, they suffered. And uh, there was a major food shortage. And, um, hmm, yeah, it, don't you find that odd? You know... There was more than enough. It lasted her all through the famine. She didn't have a lack. There was no food shortage for her or her house because she did it God's way. You. Because she did it God's way. Yeah, I hear this misinterpretation of this passage on a regular basis. Just do it God's way and then, you know, God will provide for you. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, before she did anything right or wrong, the promise was made to her. It just happens to be true. Uh, in fact, you know, hang on a second here. Let's pull this up. If you have your uh, Bible, I've, I've got my computerized Bible here. I need to look this up. Uh, widow in the Old Testament. Okay, hang on a second here. Widow, Old Testament. Ah, oh, yeah, here we go. It's uh, in, found in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Okay, okay by the way. Three, the three primary rules for sound, solid biblical interpretation are context, context and context. Those are our three primary rules. So here's the deal. If we were to look at 1 Kings chapter 17, where the story of the widow of Zarephath and the flour and the oil that didn't run out, would we find in there the, uh, the, the, the biblical interpretation that the reason why this blessing came to her is because she first did it God's way? Well, let's take a look at the text. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Arise, 
go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. This would be pagan country and Gentile territory, if you would, and, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Mm-hmm. So uh, Elijah rose, went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I might drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, Well, as the Lord your God, not my God, the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now and now I am gathering a couple of sticks so that I might go and prepare it for myself and for my son so that we may eat it and die. Sounds like she's making like um you know what what are those poisonous uh, bushes is it oleander yeah maybe that I think that's it it's like she's making oleander soup or something here anyway so he called her and said bring me a little water in a vessel I got it got it got it. okay so so God had commanded her to by the way this is so the word of the Lord came to her she was expecting Elijah right because God said to Elijah that he had commanded a widow there to feed him. And, uh, and, you know, at this point he arrives and she's gathering up sticks to have their last meals. Like how, you know, cause she doesn't have any means. Okay. Right. Cause what's going on, what happens in, in, in the ancient uh, middle East, uh, to women who are widows, they've got no way to provide for themselves. Widows are the poorest of the poor. Why? Because the. Uh, they couldn't even own property for real. I mean, it was it's just a mess. And so, I mean, if you know, so her husband's dead. Her son's obviously not old enough. She can't provide. She's she can't get ends to meet here. And God's word comes to her, and God says that He's commanding her to feed the prophet Elijah. Her response, you know, she's about ready to make suicide stew, right? So, so I'm making a meal for my uh, son. And uh, and so that we can eat it and then die. That's what she says. Verse 13 then says, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you've said. You know, Go ahead and kill yourself. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward make something for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now, okay, verse 14 makes this perfectly clear. Any pastor, any teacher in the church who claims that this story teaches that you first do it God's way and then he'll bless you is not telling you what the text says. Okay, and believe me when I tell you, there's some pretty prominent teachers out there in the seeker-driven movement and, well, people who should know better who have mishandled this text recently. Um, in upcoming episodes of Fighting for the Faith, I will explain and actually play the, the, um, the relevant portions of their sermons for you so that you can hear it. But when we look at this text in context, it is not saying that you first do it God's way and then God will bless you. It's not saying that at all. Notice that the word of the Lord was spoken by the prophet Elijah and the promise was made even while the widow had a bad attitude and was about ready to eat suicide stew, right? Here's what it says. Let me read it again. 
Okay. Verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you said. First, make for me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord. The promise was made without any obedience on her part. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. Why? Because the promise had already been made before she did even did anything. The promise was already there, right? So she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Notice verse 16 does not say, according to the obedience of the widow, to make the, to basically say that this miracle happened because of the obedience of the widow is to completely mangle the text and put the uh, emphasis on the complete wrong syllable. Not only that, it's to ignore what the biblical text itself says. The biblical text itself says that the reason why the flour was not spent and the jug of oil did not become empty was because of or according to the word of the Lord. Not her obedience, not Elijah's obedience, but according to the word of the Lord. So, yeah, uh, I'm glad that Patricia King mishandled this text because this is becoming a very common mishandling of this text that I'm beginning to hear in, well, let's just put it this way, from Bible teachers who should know better. And that's all I'll say at the moment. But you know, when Patricia King mishandles a text, yeah, we all kind of understand that goes with the territory. I mean, I think I might follow out of my seat if she actually rightly handled the text. I, I don't even think she knows how, but we continue. We will not have a food shortage. Now, people have said, should I be going out and buying and, and storing up food? If the Lord's nudging you to do that, go ahead and do it, but do not do it out of fear. Do not do it because you think, oh no, God's not enough for me, I better store up my food. But if he's telling you to do it, then do it. Do it in faith, not in fear. Is there gonna be a food shortage? Not for you, not if you're a believer. In fact, you'll have so much food that you'll be able to help those who don't. Start thinking God's way. Start thinking a kingdom way. Yeah, you got any Bible passages that, that would lay this promise out to us in unambiguous terms that we could all look at it? And know that God has called you to be a man or a woman of faith moving forward in the fullness of all of his provision. I want you... To go online and purchase two books. Yeah, no, that. <laughs> yeah, as soon as we get to the part where it turns into a commercial, <laughs> yeah, we stop. Okay, we are up on our first break. If you would like to uh, email me regarding anything that you've heard on, well, this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, 
then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could really be, well, it could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. That, that's a for real warning. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And as we approach the end of the year and you think about uh, your uh, end-of-the-year ministry giving, would you please uh, consider adding Fighting for the Faith to your year-end giving? Um, we truly depend upon your gifts to keep doing what we're doing. It's, a, it's a, Think of it as a partnership. So um, if you don't already support us, visit our website, and there's two friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate, the other says join our crew. The donate button allows you to make a one-time contribution and to specify the amount. And by joining our crew, uh, what you're doing is you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 on a monthly basis to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, shortly, we're going to be announcing our gift to our crew members and supporters uh, for supporting Fighting for the Faith uh, with an ebook that we've been working on for the last few months. So stay tuned. Stay tuned for the announcement on that. All right. So uh, let's uh, let's move along and uh, and talk about the next thing here, which reminds me to play this. <clears throat> yeah. When I'm feeling lonely, sad as I can be, 
by myself in uncharted island in an endless sea. What makes me happy fills me up with glee. Those bones in my jaw that don't have a flaw, my shiny teeth and me. All right. Yeah, I don't want to go into uh, stanza number two of my shiny teeth in me. All right. So uh, whenever I play that, well, we're doing a uh, well, an update on Joel Osteen. In case you haven't heard the news, uh, as if Joel Osteen hasn't done enough damage already. Uh, the uh, headline for this uh, comes to us. Uh, well, d- via cron.com, C-H-R-O-N.com. And uh, this is from their Believe It or Not, News and Trends from the Religious Realm with Kate Shelnut. Kate Shelnut writes that Joel Osteen's getting a reality TV show with Mark Burnett. <sighs> so uh, the story reads, uh, More than 10 million people watch Joel Osteen's television broadcast each week, and soon viewers will be able to see how the pastor of America's largest church lives outside of Lakewood. The new reality show will follow the Osteen's ministry as they serve and inspire people across the U.S. Lakewood uh, confirmed. Uh, TMZ broke the news with details from the show's producer, Mark Burnett. And this is a quote, quote, Survivor producer Mark Burnett is teaming up with Joel Osteen for a primetime network show in 2012, TMZ has learned. Burnett tells TMZ the premise of the show is that ordinary people will give up several days or longer to go on a mission uh, with Joel Osteen. And uh, one of the most popular pastors in the world. All of the missions will be in the confines of U.S. soil to start fixing things. So, um, yeah, there you go. So, a uh, reality TV show with a uh, featuring Joel Osteen. Now, see, here's the deal. I think that Mark Burnett has it totally backwards, 180 degrees the wrong direction. See, here's the deal. You shouldn't be sending people to Joel Osteen to go on little missions with Joel Osteen. Notice it said it's all going to take place within the confines of the U.S., which means it's going to be comfy, cozy, and they're just going to solve. Life's little problems, okay? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. If you're, if you're gonna have a reality TV show with Joel Osteen on it, here's what you need to do, okay? What you need to do is you need to take Joel and Victoria Osteen, okay? And for thirty days, th- for thirty days, you make them live in the roughest, toughest neighborhood of Houston, okay? Take away their cell phones, take away their jet. Uh, take a, take everything away from them, and then during the day, make them work in a hospice, caring for terminally ill patients. In fact, oh, the people who are so terminally ill that they'll be dead within the within the thirty days tour of duty that uh, Joel Osteen is doing a stint. Now that would be a reality TV show. I would really like to see happen, okay? Rather than sending people to Joel Osteen to have them fix their life's life's little boo-boos and hiccups so that he can sit there and have them look in the mirror and go, now look in the mirror and start making affirmations about the champion, the seeds of of greatness that lie dormant with inside of you. And you can and, and say things like, I am strong. I am, I am virulent. I, I, you know, silly things like that. No, no, no. Make him try that theology in a hospice with terminally ill patients. 
You see, you know, because here's the deal. Everybody that are going to send Joel Osteen there, you can tell already how it's going to go. You know, it's going to be somebody who's down on their luck, some, you know, somebody who's got a rough situation. You know, maybe like the widow at Zarephath. Then maybe they'll find her and you know, send her to Joel Osteen. And it, rather, you know, rather than miraculously providing for her you know, the way Elijah did, Joel Osteen says, now the reason why you're hungry and the reason why you're experiencing lack in your life is, well, because of that really bad stinking attitude that you have. Yeah, because notice that the widow of Zarephath said, you know, to Elijah, I'm gathering sticks to make something so that my son and I can eat it and die. You know, see, because she just had stinking thinking. And so Joel Osteen, you know, and, and notice that God provided for her despite her really bad attitude. It's true. But see, in Joel Osteen's world, God, well, he's, his hands are tied, you know. He can't do anything until you start making positive affirmations over your life. And so, you know, you could just, you know, so send him the, the widow of Zarephath and he'll be basically saying, I can't help you by giving you any food and don't expect any miracles until you clean up your attitude. You know, but anyway, it's just, you can see what this is a train wreck in the making. Anyway, I'm sure it'll provide us with some very entertaining, entertaining segments here at Fighting for the Faith in the years to come. I can hardly wait for 2012, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's too bad that uh, my end calendar probably won't be right and the end of the world won't happen before that hits the airwaves. <sighs> Shucks. Anyway, <laughs> moving along, this this well, this next segment officially marks our very 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 first official Christmas Wars update. And so, I've selected <clears throat> my own music for the Christmas Wars update. And uh, so with that, um, <clears throat> here I'll just introduce it this way. Here we go. I'll have a blue Christmas without you. Yeah, wait a second. Hold on. Kill, kill the music. Kill the music. Okay. <laughs> it's too bland. No, no. It's, this isn't going to work. Okay. If we're going to have a Christmas Wars update, yeah, I get the whole blue Christmas thing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what would Christmas be like without Christ? Yeah. yeah and the, if, if we're going to do a Christmas Wars update, we got to do this one up right. So back up the music. Then let's start again. I have my own spice I would like to add to our Christmas Wars update music. So <clears throat> let's try this again. Take two. I'm having way too much fun. <laughs> this is like some sick, twisted reversal of Silent Night. Blue, 
sometimes I feel like it's a criminal that I get paid to do what I do. Okay, so that was the that was Elvis Presley and his Blue Christmas with the um, <clears throat> the the death and destruction um, sound effect overlay. Yeah, just you know because I mean if we're going to be talking about the Christmas wars, I mean we might as well make it sound like a war. So here's the deal. All right, okay, I, to introduce the story, let me kind of ease you into the stories that I'm seeing coming across my newsreader. Okay. Um, for instance, okay, I've got a, I've got a headline from a Christian Post story that reads this, that just came out today. Churches not canceling worship on Christmas Sunday. Will people show up? Okay. That's one example. Okay. Next one. Rhode Island governor calls state house display holiday tree and upsets Christian tree farmer. Uh, so we now we've got an angry Christian tree farmer. You know, maybe they'll send the angry birds after the governor of Rhode Island for daring to call it a holiday tree. Uh, and then you know, and then you've got uh, the the uh, F- American Family Association has just this afternoon announced the uh, the this year's list, uh, this year's list of uh, merchants and retailers who are on the naughtiness, naughty list, the not-so-naughty list, and the nice list as far as retailers that are, that are Christmas-friendly and have agreed to say Merry Christmas rather than Happy Holidays. Okay, so, you know, I see stories like this, and I just want to sit, scream uh, at my newsreader, at my computer, uh, you know, however I want to do it. I, I just am incensed and the reason why i am incensed is because listen yes there is a war for christmas and it has nothing to do whatsoever with whether or not rite aid sears menards meyer kohl's kroger amazon.com or brass or bass pro shops say merry christmas okay it, it has not it, it doesn't matter Okay, I could care less as whether or not Banana Republic, Barnes and Noble, or the Foot Locker says Happy Holidays. It just doesn't matter. That's not where the real battle lines are drawn for the war on Christmas. Okay, so you know, so as far as I'm concerned, the American Family Association can take their list of for and against you know uh you know retailers you know, who, those retailers who are the for christmas or against christmas and and as far as i'm concerned they can just go pound sand i don't care okay i don't care that's not with the where the real battle lines are they're somewhere else okay and so you know let me um you know, let me see if i can do this this way okay <clears throat> we'll we'll kind of ease it this way so here's the deal let me read to you part of Ed Stetzer's blog post, okay, from uh, from today, okay? Stetzer, on his, you know, Lifeway Research blog post at edstetzer.com, has a headline for a blog post that reads, Pastors plan to host Christmas services despite a busyness of Christmas Day. And this is somehow news, Okay. Um, but uh, let me read it, and you'll see where we're going with this. He says, yesterday, we released some data on whether churches will have services on Christmas Day. I recently did an informal poll on the subject and found the discussion interesting. You can read it here. There's a link. And the Christian Post has the story with some original reporting here. And so that's uh, the the story that I re- referenced earlier that I might come to. But Stetzer does a good job of actually kind of quoting the relevant piece from the Christian Post story. And here's what he says. Here's an excerpt of the story we released yesterday. While 9 in 10 pastors 
plan for their churches to host Christmas Day services this year. There may be plenty of space in the pews for those who actually attend. A recent LifeWay research study of 1,000 Protestant pastors shows that 91% of Protestant pastors plan to have services on Christmas Day, while 69% said they plan to host Christmas Eve services. Quote, having church on Christmas Day when it falls on a Sunday seems as if it would be as much of a given as having Thanksgiving on a Thursday, but this has been an issue of discussion and contention in recent years, said Ed Stetzer, president of LifeWay Research. Yes, it has been. Also, just because an overwhelming majority of pastors think that this way doesn't mean that those in their congregation necessarily share the perspective. According to a December 2010 LifeWay research report, 74% of Americans agree strongly or somewhat that Christmas is primarily a day for religious celebration and observance, while 67% said all of Americans also agree that many of the things I enjoy during the Christmas season have nothing to do with the birth of Jesus Christ. So, quote, churches see these conflicting values, and we wanted to know how many churches plan to conduct services on each day, since that is also such a family day, particularly the morning, said Stetzer. Pastors were asked, Christmas and New Year's Day both fall on Sunday this year. As a result, does your church plan to have services on the following days? Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, and New Year's Day. 6% of Protestant churches plan to have a Christmas Eve service, but no service on Christmas Day. 28% plan to have a Christmas Day service, but no service on Christmas Eve. Also, two-thirds, 63%, plan to host both Christmas Eve and Christmas Day services. I was a bit surprised at the overwhelming number of churches that are planning Christmas Day services. And my comments at the Christian Post uh, get at that a bit. For many churches, the thought of canceling Sunday services or Christmas Day services is simply inconceivable outside of their tradition and values, yet I know of many that are canceling. So there, okay, so there it is, right? So here's the deal, okay? This, <laughs> I remember this fight really vividly because Somehow I got embroiled in it the last time this happened. Was it five, six years ago? The last time Christmas fell on a Sunday was the first time we began to see publicly churches in the seeker-driven movement advertising the fact that they would not be holding Christmas services on Christmas Day because it fell on a Sunday. That's the first time I'd ever heard of that, okay? And it's like, What? I mean, serious? that's like saying we're not going to have the 4th of July on the 4th of July. No, we're going to celebrate it on June 23rd. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, I mean, that's how silly this, this way of thinking is. But that is the reality. So I spent some time on the phone today talking with some of the prominent seeker-driven churches. Okay? And I'm not going to give you the results of all of my conversations with uh, the... Um, people answering the phones at the prominent seeker-driven churches, but let me just put it this way, okay? Um, Elevation Church, um, this would be um, Elevation Church, Charlotte, North Carolina, Pastor Stephen Furtick, um, they will not be holding a, a church service on Christmas Sunday. No, their, 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 um, their secretary made a point of saying, oh, well, no, we're going to have several worship experiences available to people leading up to Christmas Day, but Christmas is going to be a day for families to enjoy their families. So Elevation Church will not be having a Christmas service on Christmas Day. 
Um, not, neither will New Spring. In fact, uh, if you were to sh- you know pack the kids into the car and travel down to Anderson, South Carolina on Christmas morning, there would be no Christmas service for you to attend. In fact, if you want to attend a Christmas service and you attend New Spring Church, well, they'll they'll have a pre-recorded um, virtual worship experience that will air on the internet on their internet website on Christmas Day. So you know that's your only option. You have to, you know, but see, you know, so this is one of the things that's happening. Okay, is that you know, you know, since we've got to, you know, we've got to be relevant. We got to be cool. We got to cater to the needs of our target market. A lot of people think that Christmas is well. It's all about the family. So we're going to cancel church services when Christmas falls on a Sunday so that people can spend the day with their families. To which I basically say, if you attend one of these churches, um, you've forfeited at this point the right to complain about you know, Walmart saying Happy Holidays as opposed to Merry Christmas. Because something other than Christ is more important, right? Now, here's the deal, okay? I wrote a blog post today, and uh, you can find it at letterofmark.us. That's letterofmark, M-A-R-Q-U-E.us. And the name of it is Calling Out the Blatant Hypocrisy in the War on Christmas, okay? And here's my take on the matter, okay? The Christmas holiday season is here again. We all know that. That means that we're all going to have the heartwarming joy of watching the renewal of hostilities in the ongoing perennial Christmas culture wars, uh, once again, valiant and brave defenders of Christmas will make their lists and check them twice in order to warn the unwary public about those naughty retailers and municipalities who've joined with the devil and her conspiracy to remove Christ from Christmas. Now, what boggles my mind about a growing number of Christmas culture warriors is their blatant hypocrisy. Uh, these are people who will call for a boycott of a local drugstore if they're not greeted with the words Merry Christmas at the checkout counter. Yet these same folks attend and tithe at churches where Jesus is rarely, if ever, preached and proclaimed. These same folks will threaten to hold a recall election for any local city council member who would dare suggest removing the town's nativity scene from the courthouse lawn, yet these same Christian or Christmas defenders attend and tithe at churches that will be closed this Christmas because it inconveniently fell on a Sunday this year. This is madness. This is absolute and utter madness. Why is it that so many church people threaten to punish non-Christians for allegedly removing Christ from Christmas, yet these same church people give their pastor a complete pass when he removes Christ from Christianity Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Shouldn't Christians instead clean house and boycott all the churches and megachurches that are guilty of removing Christ from Christianity week in and week out? Fact is, Many who call themselves Christians have no moral authority to fault people in the world for saying happy holidays because they're hypocrites. Those same church people surround themselves with feel-good, ear-tickling, self-esteem-boosting, narcissistic, find-your-destiny, dream-the-impossible dream pastors 
and they brag about how much they love Jesus but prove that they actually hate him by financially supporting those who incessantly twist and warp his word. Now, let me read that last sentence again. These are people who brag about how much they love Jesus but prove by their actions that they actually hate Jesus by financially supporting those who incessantly twist and warp his word. Think about it. Do you really believe that on the last day that Jesus is going to throw people into hell for saying happy holidays? Or will he instead say, depart from me, I never knew you to those who claimed to be Christians, but attended churches where Christ was not proclaimed and sinners were not driven to sorrow for their sins and where the message of the free forgiveness of sins won by Christ's death on the cross was not preached. The Apostle Peter said it best when he said, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So anyway, that, that, that's the uh, the blog post that I posted and I, I don't think I pulled any punches but he, here's the deal okay I could care less if Walmart says Merry Christmas Happy Holidays Happy Hanukkah or a Merry Kwanzaa uh, Christmas Ween I I don't care okay that's not where the real battle is the real battle for Christmas is in the church and this is a battle that isn't fought on December 25th this is a battle that is fought every single Sunday. If you are attending a church where the pastor has removed Christ from Christianity, I assure you, he's not going to bring him back for Christmas. And he certainly isn't going to bring him back for Easter either. Christmas and Easter are more or less bellwethers that can help you figure out whether or not your church is really, truly preaching Christ. But I assure you, if he's gone, they're not going to bring him back for Christmas. And he'll be missing the week after Christmas, two weeks after Christmas, a month after Christmas, halfway through the summer, at the beginning of the fall, and on, in, on into the winter. That's where the real battle is taking place. And it's taking place because American evangelicalism is infested with wolves in the pulpit. They aren't teaching and preaching the truth. They are teaching their own man-made philosophical uh, traditions, if you would, and mythologies regarding the seeds of greatness that lie within you. For instance, okay, if I see somebody on the news who attends Joel Osteen's church complaining about the fact that Christ is being taken out of Christmas, I will be screaming at my television set basically saying, yeah, well, you're not going to hear Christ at, at uh, Lakewood either. You get what I'm saying? The real battle for Christmas isn't fought at Walmart. The real battle for Christmas is fought at the pulpit. It's fought every single Sunday. And if your pastor is not preaching Christ Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but is instead preaching himself or you or preaching, you know, you, your dream destiny, you can have influence, affluence, prosperity, health, and all that kind of junk. He ain't preaching Christ. And that being the case, You've already lost the battle for Christmas. 
If you want to wage the battle for Christmas, then boycott the churches where Christ isn't proclaimed Sunday after Sunday and vote with your feet and vote with your pocketbooks and show up at those obscure little churches where those pastors probably haven't seen a a big crowd like their entire ministry career because they're faithfully teaching God's word. Boycott the big church. Boycott the self-help, uh, self-esteem boosting, audacity creating, whatever, a mega church, and go visit the small little local guy who Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, regardless of whether he's preaching from the New Testament, from the Old Testament, from the Psalms, from the Apocalypse, it doesn't matter. He's faithfully, rightly handling God's word and showing you that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and placarding Christ and Him crucified for our sins. This is a man, if you can find him, this is a man whose worth is weight in gold. The place to look is the church where the parking lot is empty. Now that's not necessarily a sign, but that may be the sign. He may be in a rough part of town in a small church that can't afford any glitz. But if he's preaching the incarnate Christ, the virgin-born Son of God who came to earth and died on the cross for your sins and mine, that's where you're going to hear the true meaning of Christmas. And you're not going to just hear it on December 25th. You're going to hear it every single Sunday. That's where the real battle line is. And far too many buildings that call themselves churches are on the wrong side of this battle. Because they've hogtied Jesus. They've thrown him out of their churches. He's not there. He's not preached on any given Sunday, including Christmas. That's where we need to be incensed. Because here's the deal. In the body of Christ, the body of Christ has a say about what's preached from the pulpit. And what Pastor Bob does down the street, because we live in a world where we're all now interconnected via the Internet, what he does matters. It matters to me and it matters to you. Because in the body of Christ, Christ is to be exalted. Not me, not you, not the pastor, not his dreams, or not anything else. And if there's a Christian church that calls itself a Christian church where Christ is taken out of Christmas and taken out of Christianity, that's a crime in the kingdom of God. And it needs to be called out and basically rebuked and corrected for what it is, a sin. That's where the real battle for Christmas lies. Not at Walmart, not at Walgreens, not at Victoria's Secret, not at Sears, not at Meyer, not anywhere else. The battle for Christmas is being waged right now, and it's happening Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and it's happening in your church and mine. And if your pastor's not preaching Christ Sunday after Sunday, chances are you're not going to hear about a Christ-filled Christmas from your pastor. Because Jesus isn't the Lord of that church. Somebody else is. Something to keep in mind. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we're going to be doing a first here at Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be listening to and reviewing a a sermon supposedly based upon the um, recent blockbuster movie, uh, The Grinch. Now, I mean, you can even think of the cartoon here. I mean, the, the cartoon Dr. Seuss version is the same as, 
Well, you know what I'm saying. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Hi, Rich Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. kind of like a summer movie sermon mixed with, um, well, for the Christmas holiday season. Let's cue up the music first. This sermon is not going to help my headache. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, This is an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon is entitled The Grinch, Enlarging My Heart, from the God on Film Christmas Edition sermon series from Vantage Point Church, Corona, California. Mark Lee presiding. Please open your DVD case to The Grinch That Stole Christmas and pop it into the DVD player and uh, use the chapter selection button to select chapter number one. I just... Yep, nope, it's not helping my headache. Like, not at all. 
All right, let's um, <clears throat> let's kill the music here. So I, I'm just going to dive into it. Without any further ado, here is the uh, the Grinch enlarging my heart by Mark Lee from Vantage Point Church, Corona, California. Here we go. And with a greasy black Already, this is going wrong. You're a monster, Mr. Grinch. Your heart's an empty hole. You're a crooked, jerky jockey, and you drive a crooked horse, Mr. Grinch. You're a three-decker sauerkraut and toadstool sandwich. With arsenic sauce. All right, good morning, everybody. Hey, we've started this series called God on Film Christmas Edition. And if you guys know, if you guys, if you guys have been to our church for a while, usually what we do is we take God on Film and we do it during the summertime when all the blockbusters are coming out. But we decided this year to do something just a little bit different. And so what we're doing is we're looking at some of the greatest Christmas movies of all times, and we're using that as a springboard into a spiritual conversation. What are some of the spiritual themes that we find hidden in some of these movies? Today, as you can probably guess, we're talking about how the Grinch stole Christmas. If you know anything about the book, it was written in 1957. It was a Dr. Seuss book. It was first turned into an animated feature in 1966, which is amazing to think that that was, what, like 44 years ago or something like that. And, and, and it was turned into a Jim Carrey movie just in the year 2000. Now, if you think about how the Grinch stole Christmas, what it is, is it's a children's adaptation or it's a children's version of a Charles Dickens, a Christmas carol, isn't it? Because in the Christmas Carol, you have this Scrooge-like person, and he wa- d- wants nothing to do with Christmas, and he says things like, bah humbug, and he, and he doesn't like the Christmas spirit, and he doesn't like being generous, and he doesn't like what everything's about. And so what they've done is they've really taken that idea, and they've applied that towards kids. That here you have this Grinch, and this Grinch wants nothing to do with Christmas. In fact, he lives above Whoville, And he looks down at all these who people who love the Christmas time. They love the decorations. They love the presents. They love the the, the food. They love everything that comes along with it. And this Grinch wants nothing more than to spoil their holiday festivities. And so him and his sidekick, Max, his little dog, Max, come up with this plan that what they're going to do the night before Christmas Day is they're going to go ahead and foil their Christmas by stealing all of their presents, by stealing all of their food, and by stealing all of their gifts because this apparently is what Christmas is all about. Now, you may not necessarily be a Grinch. You may not necessarily put yourself in that category. You may not necessarily be somebody who wants to stop Christmas from coming or slow Christmas down. But what you might still find out is that your heart still isn't quite ready to celebrate Christmas for all that it is and all that it entails. You remember when you were a kid? Oh, my gosh. When you were a kid, Christmas was like everything to you. I mean, Christmas meant the whole world to you. There was something about even the Christmas holiday season that even started to get the Christmas juices flowing that for you, 
maybe it was when the, when the family uh, bought that Christmas tree and you brought it home and you finally started decorating it. For my wife, it was when the family got together and started making Christmas cookies. For me, it was when we finally got off on Christmas vacation. You remember that? You got off on Christmas. I, I think the teachers are still excited about that. But you, you got- Okay, uh, notice we, we're talking about Christmas sans, that means without, a biblical text so far. I'm hoping we steer into one. I don't know where this sermon's going to go at this point. But supposedly it's about, um, you know, the Grinch that's still, and it's something about enlarging your heart. You know, okay. We got off for Christmas, and for me, it was when the Charlie Brown Christmas special came on. That special thing that, you know, and it would start the Charlie Brown Christmas special. When I saw that, I knew that Christmas was just right around the corner. And you remember Christmas Day? Oh my gosh, you woke up in this peppermint coma because you were up all night or you woke up really early in the morning and to you, it was just all about the hungry, hungry hippo at the time. You thought to yourself that if I could just get a hungry, hungry hippo from Santa this year, that my Christmas would be complete. See, for me, for me, it was having an opportunity to play the cutting edge gaming system of the time. You remember what that was? It was called the Commodore 64. 64K of RAM. What was I going to do with all of that blazing speed? And I thought to myself that if I could just have that, that everything would be fine, that everything would be okay. That that, I mean, as a child, really, Christmas was the most wonderful time of the year. It was better than Thanksgiving. It was better than your birthday. This was the one time of year where you got all of these presents and you look forward to this day more so than anything else. Now, isn't it true that I don't even quite know where it happened. Maybe it happened in the teenage years. Maybe it happened in your 20s. But isn't it true that somewhere along the way that Christmas just kind of lost its snap? Christmas somewhere along the way just kind of lost its pizzazz. Christmas just kind of lost its spirit fingers. Because maybe, maybe you had an older sibling that tried to convince you that there was no such thing as Santa. Lies. You sit on a throne of lies. Or, or, or maybe it was Aunt Joan coming to the Christmas party every year, you know, having drank too much eggnog. See, all you know is that Christmas was this time of year where you had to brave all of this holiday traffic. You had to see a bunch of people that you didn't like. You had to spend a bunch of money that you didn't necessarily have. And the only way that you could really survive the Christmas holiday was for you to somehow in your mind relegate this to be a, a, a holiday that's just for children. That it's like, Halloween. It's like any other time. Not the lights and the fables and the presents and the this and the that. But it's really the only way you can manage to get through this whole thing is for you to think yourself that, that you know what, this is really just a holiday for kids. That there's, that there's really no expectation on your part as an adult. That there's really no antis- anticipation on your part as an adult that it just reminds you of all the things you need to do on top of an already busy schedule, on top of an already stretched budget. And what you might just very well find, just like the Grinch, is that your heart begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. That what you might find is that maybe your heart is two sizes too small. You know, I'd pound my head against the desk, but I heard it earlier, and I already have a headache, and yeah, serious? 
do you got any Bible for me here? Um, you know, it's not like there isn't a story about the birth of Christ in the but you, you got anything for that you got anything that you know i mean cuz my i'm feeling my heart shrink as uh, as i listen to this because of its lack of focus on christ because this is what we understand about the grinch that the problem that he has with christmas it's not a spiritual problem right it's not like he wants to take the christ out of christmas and he really wants to you know just say happy holidays he's got no problem with yeah, I don't know, going to church on Christmas. He- Notice the reference to the Christmas wars. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, um, yeah, rather than being a casualty of the Christmas wars in your church, could you, like, you know, take the side of Christ and really, really do a good job, a good whiz-bang job of preaching him? Now, I, I don't know if he's going to. I haven't listened to the whole sermon, so I don't know if Mark's going to land this thing right i just i the longer we go the less hope i have of that happening and based on his previous performances you know here on fighting for the faith not i'm not hopeful here um so yeah my heart's shrinking because of the lack of christ in this christmas sermon the Grinch's problem with Christmas isn't spiritual. The Grinch's problem with Christmas is not emotional. It's not like he really did see mommy kissing Santa Claus, under, you know, and then ever since then, you know, he wants nothing to do with Christmas. What we find is this, that the Grinch's problem with Christmas is biological, that he can't help but to hate Christmas, that he is predisposed because of his cardiac condition to not want anything to do with Christmas because he was born with a heart that was two sizes too small. And what you might find this Christmas is that you find yourself with a heart that is just two sizes too small. And so today what we want to do is we want to talk about your heart. Today is really a message about your heart. Because this is what we understand, that we know that the Christmas season, we know that the Christmas holiday is meaningful as Christians. We don't have to concoct, we don't have to infuse purpose into this holiday, do we? I mean, we understand that this was about God seeing humanity in their sin. Understanding that God did not want to give us what was fair at that point. That God did not want to give us justice, but he wanted to grant us mercy and so and th- this is gospel stuff. All right, I'm 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 a little happier. My heart has just gotten a size larger. So God as this king wanted to come down to his people and instead of this king having his people go to war and die for him, this king decided that he would go and he would die for his people. And so instead of coming with a robe and a scepter and a throne and a crown, what we see from this king is that he is born in a manger. He is surrounded by animals. And he is wrapped in swaddling clothes. Great. You, you, you might care to open up the Luke story for us and maybe read a little bit of it, please? We don't have to infuse meaning into this Christmas season. But what you might find is that your heart is not enlarged. Your heart is not in a place Your heart is not pure enough to really celebrate what God really wants for you this Christmas season. I assure you that that's true. My heart is not pure enough. That's why I need a Savior. Um, 
Yeah, you know, listen, forget that. Just let's let's get on to the good stuff. Read me the biblical text. If you're talking about the meaning and the purpose of Christmas, you know, Christmassy sermon that has something to do with the Grinch. I'm not sure where the Grinch plays into the Bible. Um, if you, you you're sure that the the Christians have a ready-made purpose for Christmas, let's get to that and let's skip this Grinchy stuff. This message is really all about enlarging your heart. And what we want to do today is this, that we want to be able to pray what King David prayed when he said this, create in me a pure heart, O God. Good good stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some gospel flavoring in the mix here. Maybe we might get the full-blown gospel here if if he keeps it up. And would you, for just one month out of the year, God, would you renew a right spirit in me? Uh, For just, oh, no, 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 you did not do that. No, no, he, oh, man. (laughs) He just took that fantastic psalm of David, created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Yeah, um, and we're now we're using that to pray that God, for just one month, would give you the Christmas spirit. <laughs> you remember that? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Why don't you say that with me? Create in me... A clean heart, oh God. And you're praying for the Christmas spirit. And renew a right spirit in me. Isn't it true that the older we get, the grumpier we get, the more cynical we get, the more Grinch-like we get? Yeah, the more sermons I hear like this, the quicker I become Grinchy. Yes, that's right. This this is a Grinch-making sermon rather than a Grinch-curing sermon. No elbowing right now because I'm talking to you. And, and, and we just become this person that we don't want to become. We look in the mirror and we think to ourselves that that isn't what I always thought of. And so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about your heart. Now, you, you very well know that I'm not talking about your physical heart. I'm not talking about your diastolic or your systolic as much as I'm talking about your other heart. The Hebrew word for heart is a word called nefas. And it's a word that refers to your soul. It refers to your desires. It refers to your emotions. It refers to your passions. Your heart, in a biblical sense, ultimately um, is defined by who you are on the inside. Proverbs chapter 27, verse 19, it says this. As a face is reflected in water, so the heart reflects the person. So it's this idea that who you are on the inside is who you really are. What it is that is in the contents of your heart defines who it is that you are. You probably always heard of that phrase that you are what you eat. What does that mean? I don't understand that, that you are what you eat, that you're, I don't know what, defined by the contents of your tummy. All of a sudden that doesn't paint a very, you know, uh, flattering picture of me and you. The Bible doesn't necessarily say that you and I, that we are what we eat. The Bible says that you are what is in your heart. That you are defined by your passions. That you are defined by the things that are inside of you. That these are the most important characteristics of who we are. 
Now, whenever we're talking about enlarging our heart, whenever we talk about cleaning out our heart, always um, what we what we usually think about is we usually think about, you know, confessing our sins to God. And as long as we confess our sins to God, then our heart will be clean. Our heart will be right with God. Everything will great be great. And we just kind of move on with our lives because here we are, God, I've confessed my sins. I'm about as pure as I can be. I mean, isn't it true that one of the first Sunday school lessons that we ever learn is 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9, it says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, right? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Why is it that I just, I'm detecting in the way you're talking about this, that somehow you're going to just totally try to subvert that. Yeah, because this biblical text say, yes, if we confess with our, yeah, uh uh-huh. So, yeah, confessing our sins and being forgiven is an important thing, don't you think? Um, yeah, we've got a problem here. Uh, we've got a problem. Oh, man. Let's continue. How do we get God to enlarge our heart? How do we get God to make room in here and reorder the priorities of my life? Usually our answer is, well, all we have to do is ask for forgiveness and then everything between us and God is fine, right? See, I loved this verse that if we confess our sins, he, will be, he is faithful and just and forgive us our sins and purify all, us from all unright. You know why I've always loved that verse? Because I thought... Because it's true? I found a Christian loophole... Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Now, at this point, <laughs> he's attacking the gospel almost directly. Yeah, by the way, talking about the heart. Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, let me read to you a story. Let me read to you a Jesus story. And, um, you know, since you know, I'm complaining about Christ being taken out of Christmas, I thought, you know, since this Christmas story at this point is now attacking the gospel... Itself, unbelievable, unbelievable. Um, I would read a, a story where Jesus talks about, you know, the heart. Um, Matthew chapter fifteen. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, "Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat." Uh huh. So Jesus answered them, "And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition?" For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. Uh, But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father and mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you've made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you when he said, these people honor honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that this is what defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended uh, when they heard you say this? Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Well, explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still without understanding? 
Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and then it's expelled? So what comes out of the mouth proceeds from, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, <clears throat> so this passage that Mark Lee at this point appears to be attacking, yeah, which is a clear gospel passage, um, provides the solution to this problem. Because Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Yikes. That's what comes out of my heart? Let me look inside. Yep, that's what's in there. Now, when you look inside of your heart, what do you see? Be honest. Same thing, isn't it? Out of your heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, etc. These are the things coming out of your heart, too. So now you got a problem, because here's the deal. Every one of these sins that have burbled up from within inside of your heart... Um, they, each and every single one of them can send you to hell. That's what you deserve for each and every one of those sinful thoughts that burble up from within your heart. So how are you going to be made right with God? Because, I mean, if you're honest, you've probably spent some time trying to clean that up. And um, you haven't gotten rid of it, have you? It's still there, isn't it? So what hope do you have? If salvation isn't a free gift, where our sins are forgiven because of what Christ has done, and if the forgiveness of sins isn't a free gift that we receive by faith, um, and I've got to clean up my heart, grow it, if you would, turn, take the blackness and smallness of it and turn it into something, you know, grow it and enlarge it myself in order to be saved, I'm, I'm not going to be saved. I'm for sure going to be damned. And so will you. So Mark Lee is, um, at this point, he's now, rather than explaining the good news in that text, he's trying to take it away. Oh, boy. I thought that verse was just too good to be true. You know why? Because I would do something wrong. I would confess it. God forgives me. We move on. Bada bing, bada bang. It's done. When I was in college, you know what my prayer life was like? I did a lot of bad things in college. So my prayer life would go something like this. God, forgive me of this. Forgive me of that. Forgive me of this. Forgive me of that. And then I would lay the atomic bomb prayer on top of everything. You know what that is? Maybe you've prayed that. Maybe your children have prayed this. God, and just in case I've forgotten anything, why don't you just forgive me of all of my sin? Right? Okay, I don't know why we don't just pray that from the beginning. Okay, why even go through the this and that and this and that? God, just forgive me of all of my sin, this all-encompassing prayer, and then all of a sudden my heart is big and I have nothing to worry. It sounds to me like you're taking the gospel and turning it into a license to sin, or uh, the way Walther describes it in Law and Gospel, he talks about turning the gospel into a pillow that you lay your kernel uh, head on. Yeah, to make your carnal flesh comfortable. 
I mean, that's what he's describing. But the problem isn't with the gospel in that case. It's a, it's a misuse of the gospel. I'm pure before God and everything is right. I always feel pretty good about that. I kept my end of the bargain. God kept his end of the bargain. We could move on with our lives and everything was great. As I moved on in my spiritual walk, this is what I began to realize, too, that even my Catholic friends had found the same loophole that I did, right? Except for their loophole was just a little bit different from ours, and I thought it was kind of cool. See, the ways that theirs would be a little bit different is that they would go to, into a booth, they would air out their dirty laundry, they'd go back to their lives. The only difference between my system of confession and their system of confession was that they had a guy who would say, you did what? And when I was always prone to think that my system of confession was always better than anybody else's, this is what I began to realize, that there was no difference at all. There was no difference between the way that I would do it, the way that somebody else would do it. And you probably have your own way of confessing your sins, airing out your dirty laundry, making your heart right with God. You probably have your own little system of doing that. Some people confess to a priest. Some people confess directly to God. This is what I know, that none of us is actually interested in changing our lifestyle. That none of us is, that none of us. So if I don't, so let me see if I got this straight. It, the way I need to make things right with God is by ch agreeing to change my lifestyle. In other words, salvation is by my obedience to the law. It's not a gift. It's something I earn. We're actually interested in changing the way that we live. You know what we want? We want the cloud to be lifted. We want the slate to be wiped clean. We want to have this warm and fuzzy feeling inside of us to think that everything is hunky-dory between me and God. You know what we want? We want God off of my back. We want God on my side. And then we want to be able to move on with the rest of our lives like everything is fine. Rinse, repeat. There's nothing going to be different about my life. See, but here's what I want you to think about just for a second. Oh, my. So we're, we're, at this point, we're going to cancel the gospel because you've misapplied it. Oh, my. Ugh. And if you would. I want you to think about how God must feel during this whole process. How do you think, how do you think God feels? Yeah, tough to tell. Um, I, I have never met him. Seriously, I've never met him. Can't say that I know his emotions unless he's revealed it to me. I can point to biblical passages that might talk about this, but um, kind of a useless question, don't you think? I'm going to give you a little analogy for a second. The analogy is this. Imagine if you had a roommate. Imagine if this roommate always stole from you. Imagine if this roommate always stole your friends, if this roommate always gossiped behind your back, and every week this roommate would come to you and ask for forgiveness. Oh, you know, please forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I never do it again. Hmm. You know, uh, there's a passage that comes to mind now that he mentions it. Hang on a second here. I'm going to do a word search in the gospel. Oh, yeah, here it is. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. If you have your Bible, flip on over there here. It, you know, I don't need to um, speculate here. Jesus talks about this. Matthew chapter 18. Okay, so uh, let's see here. Um, all right, yeah, the, the, we'll start at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother, but if he does not listen... 
take one or two others along with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to listen to the church, let let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, um, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? <laughs> Jesus said to him, yeah, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Okay. Yeah, and it goes on. So therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, let me change the uh, the money amounts here. 10,000 talents, you know, that's a lot of money. I think a, a talent being about 100 pounds worth of gold, you think about this. So let's just put it this way. First guy owed him $10 trillion. That's that's kind of the absurdity of the number, okay? So when, when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him $10 trillion. Since he could not pay, duh, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, uh, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He forgave him a debt of $10 trillion. Serious? Ten, $10 trillion. He forgave him that outrageous of amount of money just wrote it off the books you gotta be kidding me but that's what the parable says who's the king in the parable by the way jesus is this is why the scriptures say that even though your sins be as scarlet christ will make you as white as snow jesus is in the debt cancellation business that's what his death on the cross is all about so if you owe God $10 trillion because of your sinful rebellion against him, and you know that you're as guilty as sin, and you haven't got a snowball's chance in Hades of getting into heaven, and that you know that God has can should and ought to rightly damn you to hell, this ought to give you some hope. Here we've got, I mean, the guy didn't do anything. He just had his debt canceled out of the pure love and mercy. I mean, wow. Okay. So out of pity for the master, the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. About a thousand bucks. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Sound familiar? He refused, went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went and reported to their master all that, the, all that had taken place. And then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? So in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So here's the deal. Do you forgive in order to be forgiven? Nope. It's not what this passage is teaching. It teaches that if you truly are forgiven, you forgive. There's no such thing as faith without works. No such thing. It doesn't exist. That's like saying you believe in flaming snowflakes. Anybody who is in Christ is a new creation. Now, you still have your sinful flesh that really has it in for you, okay? Really does. And you're going to wrestle and with that flesh, and you're going to have to do the task of mortifying it. But you don't mortify it in order to be saved. You mortify it because you are saved. Does that make sense? So we forgive because we forgiven. we're forgiven. That doesn't make any sense for somebody who's, who has a $10 trillion debt canceled to not be forgiving when it comes to a thousand bucks. Doesn't make any sense. That's the sign of somebody who's unregenerate, unrepentant. Anyway, I just thought I'd throw that in there. I don't know where Mark is going to go because I'm, I'm past the point where I previewed this sermon. And I mean, I got to tell you, I'm deeply disappointed in what I'm hearing so far. But we continue. Again, and as soon as that person would ask for forgiveness, no sooner would they go around and do, do the same thing. How would that make you feel? Okay, now to add insult to injury, what if that roommate, every time they were in a financial pinch, every time their car broke down, they always came to you for an emergency for you to come and bail them out of a difficult spot? Okay. Is it me? I mean, this isn't biblical teaching yet. Um, this seems to be running contrary to sound biblical passages like the one I just read. Okay, now isn't it true? I don't even really have to explain the analogy, do I? I, I mean, I want you to think about this for a second. I mean, literally, our system of making our heart right with God, I think it is an insult to God, honestly. Our system, okay. Because uh, think about this for a second. It doesn't even make sense. How does confessing our sins to God make up for the wrongs that I have done to another person? Have you been to seminary, Mark? Because, you know, I'm beginning to feel like you don't, you need to go to class and take like forgiveness 101, at least when it comes to our right standing before God. How, how does that make up for that? Not only does, does it not work, but it doesn't, not only does it not make sense, but it doesn't even work. It's almost kind of t like taking Advil. You know what Advil does? Advil takes the edge off of the pain, but it doesn't really do anything to solve the root issue of what is going on. Yeah, that's why Jesus died on the cross. Um, <clears throat> let, me, um, lead, let me read a little bit from the Apostle John. Not that he's an expert or anything. I mean, it's not like what he wrote was inspired by the Holy Spirit or anything, or like, you know, he spent three years with Jesus and might have known a thing or two of what to talk. I'm sure this is just his opinion. But um, he, here's what the Apostle John wrote in his uh, first epistle, uh, 1 John chapter 1. Um 
verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let, let me see that again. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, you, I'm sure you've weighed this passage before you started preaching this Grinchy sermon, right, Mark? That's why we still feel guilty. That's why we still think about things. That is why our heart is still two sizes too small. And it's interesting because when the Bible talks about this, when the Bible talks about this whole idea of confession, it always talks about this idea. If you look at the scripture, confession is always connected with change. Confession is always talk, uh, connected with restitution. Confession is always connected with making things right. You don't have to turn there, but Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 through 7, it says this. When a man or a woman wrongs another in any way and so is unfair, this is the Mosaic law. This is the thing that condemns us. Faithful to the Lord, that person is guilty and must confess the sin he has committed. Okay, great. Going to confess that sin, no problem. But verse 7 takes us one step further. He must make full restitution for his wrong, add one-fifth to it, and give it all to the person he is wrong. So what you begin to see is that saying you're sorry or feeling bad about what you've done, that is not enough. See, God is more interested with a change of your life. God is more interested in you changing your lifestyle. And even here, when someone has been wrong, you know what God says? Okay, you know how I know that you're sorry for what you've done? What you're going to do is not only openly confess your sin or your wrongdoing to somebody else, not only are you going to make full restitution, but you're going to go ahead and add one-fifth. You're going to go ahead and, ahead and add 20% interest on top of that. Then, then, then we're off to a good start. In the New Testament, there's a character named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is someone who has, he, 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 is a, he has betrayed his, his state. He has embezzled money from his own people. And as Jesus... Okay, now here's the problem with the sermon, okay? I mean, this is just so bad. It's a mixing. What you're listening to is a mixing of the categories of law and gospel. And that's the problem. And the, the reason it's the problem is because when you mix law and gospel, you get a third substance that's neither. And it's not, and you can't tell what's really, what it is that really makes you right before God. Am I made right before God by the free gift and by Christ alone? Or is it a combination of me and Jesus working together to amend my life so that I can make up for the wrong things that I've done? Because remember, the category we're dealing with by Mark's own admission, by his own outline, by his own preaching, is what it means to get right with God. So, um, yeah, this is an utter confusion of law and gospel. As a result of it, you're not hearing the biblical gospel. Everything he's preaching actually undoes and contradicts the biblical teaching of the free forgiveness of sins. We continue. 
Jesus invites himself over to this tax collector's house, what we begin to find is that in one instant, his whole life, Zacchaeus' whole life has changed. And listen to Zacchaeus' response to his life being changed by Jesus. He says this in Luke chapter 19, verse 8. He says, look, Lord, here and now, this is what I'm going to do to make up for my wrongs. I give one half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. That not only will I pay back what I have wronged, but I will pay them back 400% interest at that point. I want you to notice not his reaction, but Jesus' reaction. Because what Jesus doesn't do is Jesus doesn't say, whoa, 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 Zacchaeus, hold on there, buddy. You're overreacting here. I know your heart. I know that you're sorry. We don't need to make a big deal out of this whole thing. This is ultimately really just between you and God. Uh, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that, though. You know what Jesus says? He says this. Because of some of these things that you want to do, now I know that you really want to be forgiven. That is not what the text says. That is a lie. He is blatantly and brazenly mishandling God's word. Let's take a look at the text so you can see what's going on here. Jesus didn't say, oh, well, because you're willing to do these things, I know that you're ready to be forgiven. The text doesn't say that. If you have your Bible, flip on over to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. This is what happens when somebody who should not be preaching preaches. Somebody who isn't properly trained in handling God's word and doesn't understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. This is what happens when they preach. Okay, Luke chapter 19, verse 1. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. You can read, he was a thief, and he was rich. He was a turncoat. He was a traitor to Israel, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not. Now, here's the deal. How do you think Zacchaeus is treated by his fellow Jews, since he is a rich tax collector, he is literally basically not much better than a dog in their eyes. He is a turncoat. He's working for the evil, vile, pagan, anti-God Roman Empire, extorting money from people, taking more than he should engorging himself on the backs of his fellow Israelites. This man, I mean, seriously, the, the give you an, a, just an example of what this person would be viewed like. Historically, this is an impossibility, but this is what it would be like. This would be the equivalent of a Jew in Germany becoming a member of the SS. And he's saying that's not possible. I understand that, but that's what we're talking about. That's how he would be viewed. Okay? So he was a tax collector, and he was rich. He was seeking to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, 
for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. This is unheard of. Jesus is showing kindness. Not only kindness, he's going to stay at Zacchaeus's house. You have got to be kidding me. Jesus is showing love and kindness and forgiveness to this traitor. Now remember, there's a passage in Scripture that says that we love God because He first loved us. Notice, Jesus here is showing love, kindness, and forgiveness to Zacchaeus. This is a man who's a thief. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Yeah, everybody there is going, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Don't you understand who this man is? Don't you understand what he's done to our people? They all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods, I give them to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone for anything, I restore it fourfold. Why did he do that? It's the same thing as the story in Luke 18. This is a man who owed a trillion dollar debt to God and Jesus cancels it on the spot. And unlike in the story, the parable that Jesus told of the men who owed the debts, Zacchaeus here doesn't go and demand from people. Instead, he begins acknowledging that he's ex he's stolen and he's extorted. And now he, out of the mercy that he's received, he now is doing good works. Because he is a new creation in Christ. He is not being forgiven because of his willingness to give his money back and make restitution. He is giving his money back and making restitution because he has been forgiven. God in human flesh has shown nothing but kindness and mercy to this sinner. And here's the deal. The reality of the story is that you and I are Zacchaeus. We're the sinners, right? So Jesus said to him, now here's the important part. Listen to the difference between what Jesus did say and what Mark Lee is lying and trying to make Jesus say. Here's what Jesus did say. Today, salvation has come to this house. Since he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus sought out this miserable, lost sinner. And Jesus forgave him. And Jesus showed kindness to him. And Jesus loved him. And this man was raised from the dead and bore fruit in keeping with repentance. 
The actions that you see are what happens when somebody is truly brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins. They do good works because they can't help but do it because that's what we do according to our new nature. When you think about the thief on the cross, Jesus was crucified. He was in the middle spot where Barabbas was supposed to be. Jesus is being crucified. And one of the one of the thieves he's crucified between is reviling him. And the other comes to his to Jesus' defense and says, Don't you know that we're receiving the due penalty for what we've done? Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. And then he looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Did the thief on the cross have the ability to perform any good works while he was nailed to that cross? The answer is yes. The good work that he did was trying to plead with his fellow criminal and sharing Jesus and protecting Jesus and wanting him to repent of his false words against Jesus. That was a good work that showed that faith was alive. Right? So now I'm going to back the audio up about 20, 25 seconds. Because we've looked at the passage in context and seen what it really says. But Mark Lee is not rightly handling this text. And he's destroying the biblical gospel in his preaching. Literally at this point, shipwrecking these people, not leading them to heaven, causing them to trust in their own self-righteousness rather than what Christ has done. This is the type of preaching that sends people to hell. Sorry. We don't need to make a big deal out of this whole thing. This is ultimately really just between you and God. Uh, Jesus, Jesus doesn't say that, though. You know what Jesus says? He says this. Because of some of these things that you want to do, now I know that you really want to be forgiven. Now, there's, now I understand that there's a true change in your life. <laughs> this is backwards. He doesn't know the Bible. He doesn't know the scriptures. He's not paying attention to what's going on in the text. And he's inserting stuff that isn't there into the text. And as a result of it, he's not speaking the truth. In fact, Jesus himself says this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. He says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. So he's saying this, that if you come to church, if you start worshiping God, you're raising your hands and you get all emotional. If you have your little offering thing and you're right about putting in the thing, and there you remember that not even necessarily that you have a beef against somebody else, you could be totally fine. He's saying that if you at that point remember that somebody has something against you, this is what you should do. He says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, by the way, this is the only verse in the whole Bible where he says, stop worshiping God. Get your butt out of church. He says this, first go and be reconciled to your brother. 
That is what you should do first. That should be your first priority. Then come and offer your gift. See, when everyone else has a tendency to think, to, when everyone else has a tendency to think that our confession of God is the only thing that matters in enlarging this right here, you know what Jesus does? He flips the whole thing on its head. And he says this, you want to know how your relationship with God is doing? You, you, you want to know, like, you're standing with God, you're footing with God, you want to know how things are going? Well, if you want to know where your relationship with God is, see, all you have to do is look at your relationship with other people. That's it. That you cannot separate the two. That you cannot separate your relationship with God and you cannot separate your from your relationship with other people. You cannot in your mind think that everything's hunky-dory between you and God and to see that there is friction between you and someone else. See, Jesus says this, that maybe one of the greatest barometers, maybe one of the greatest indicators of how your relationship with God is doing is to evaluate and to look at your relationship with other people. What he's trying to say... Second, you know, is that second part of the great commandment. Love others as yourself. This is the law. And if you're honest with yourself, you don't keep this. What he's saying does not offer any comfort. And if my relationship with God is based upon my keeping of the second commandment, or if yours is, you are lost for eternity. This is not the gospel. He is preaching pure law, and he's condemning you. Basically saying it's up to you to save yourself. Say is this, that confessing to God is really no substitute. It is no substitute for you confessing to other people. See, part of enlarging your heart, part of making this bigger and purifying this and really getting ready to celebrate this holiday season, especially with all the, you know, with your family members and this person, and part of enlarging this is for you to, for you to say what needs to be said. You, you know what I'm saying? Because today, today, without you even putting it off another day, today, maybe what God wants you to do is maybe God wants you to send that text. God wants you to send that message. God wants you to make that appointment to something that you know is going to be a very, very, very awkward situation. You know, where you're like, hey, how's it going? How you doing? Oh, by the way, I've been meaning to talk to you about something. Those are always extremely awkward situations, but maybe that is exactly what God is calling you to do today. Because what you will find is this, when you and I begin to humble ourselves, when you and I begin to do everything that it takes to make a relationship between us and someone else right, when you and I begin to do everything in our power to pursue healthy relationships with other people, see, that is when this starts getting bigger so it's up to you to make your heart larger good luck even though the scriptures say that it's god who replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh or that our hearts are circumcised by christ huh weird huh 
This is like the equivalent of telling dead people to raise themselves. Good luck. See, that is when God starts doing a work here. See, the question I want to ask you today is this. When was the last time that you said you were... When was the last time that you said that you were wrong? You know, not, not but, and this is why, and, and then... When was the last time that you said that you were sorry? When was the last time that you said that it was all your fault? When was the last time that you said, you know what? I take full responsibility for what happened. See, you may have said some of those things, but isn't it true that you and I, we spend a lot more time defending ourselves than we do humbling ourselves, don't we? We spend so much more time backpedaling and thinking about how the other person was right, and we'll give out the gratuitous, I'm sorry, but it's really only to make ourselves feel better. See, I think part of the confusion stems from the fact that really, that that when you and I sign on the dotted line to become a Christian, for the first time, you and I came face to face with the unconditional, the undeserved love of God. And if you were anything like me, you probably cried like a little schoolgirl. Because you were a friend of God. You know, all of your sins, past, present, future, have been forgiven. There's nothing that you could do. Notice that the gospel here, that was the gospel. I'm not going to play the gospel nugget soundbite, though. Because he's undone the entire gospel in this non-biblically-based sermon that confuses law and gospel. So now we're hearing about the good news of the forgiveness of sins, kind of. But you can't reconcile it with anything that he said before. Because you first, by your actions, have to show that you want to be forgiven. And if you don't, well, then you're not right with God. To possibly earn God's love. But here's the catch to that situation. What you and I don't realize is that even though God forgave us, that everybody in the whole world didn't decide to forgive us as well. It's not like the moment that you decided to accept the forgiveness of God that everybody else decided to come on and look at your Facebook and say, oh, okay, well, I'll forgive you too. And I'll just go ahead and move on with the rest of my life. See, God's grace does not give you and me a trap door away from our responsibility. See, if anything, just the fact that Jesus has paid a debt then you and I cannot pay back should actually motivate us to pay back the debts that we do owe. And the debts that we can pay back to the people that we do owe. Because I want you to think about this for a second. I want you to think about the person in your life whose apology that you would most love to have. I want you to think about, just for one second, the person whose apology in your life would be most unexpected. And I want you to think about what it would be like for that person to come to you to accept full responsibility for what they've done, to want your forgiveness, and to be willing to do anything that they could to make the relationship right. A.K.A. they were willing to kiss your butt like nobody's tomorrow. See, my guess is that you would never, not ever be the same after that. 
that you would hardly even be able to resist some of the changes that God would want to do inside of your heart. Now, you know what the truth of the matter is? The truth of the matter is this. There is someone in your life today who needs that from you. There is someone in your life today who is angry, who is resentful. There is someone in your life today whose heart is filled with bitterness because of something that you've done or something that you've said to them. And I rationalize it the exact same way that you do. I say, oh, well, you know, I was just joking. A person needs to lighten up a little bit and learn how to take a joke. I was a teenager. I was dumb. I was stupid. I was young. I was this. I was that. There's a litany of excuses that you and I make up in our minds not to do exactly what we're talking about. Without understanding that you may literally hold the last puzzle piece to someone being able to move on with the rest of their lives. And this is a promise to you. This is what I've realized after walking with the Lord for the short 20 years that I have. At some point in your journey, let me tell you what God will call upon you at some point to do. At some point in your journey, what God will do is God will call you to look back and to take responsibility for your past. In my last year, uh, my my first year of grad school as an engineering student, I lifted a paper right off of the internet. Word for word, I copied that thing, I, 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 I submitted it, I got an A-plus on that paper. And then the semester I was supposed to graduate, God called me to go back to that professor and admit exactly what I had done. That's exactly what I did. See, at some point in your life, when you reach this plateau where this ain't getting much bigger, God at some point is going to have you take responsibility for an ex, a child that's been left in the dust, things that have gone unpaid, things that have been left unsaid, bridges that you have burned with ex-business partners. Mark my words, at some point, God calls you to own those things and to resolve some of those things. Let me, let me tell you about a situation that happened in my own life that I'm not very proud of. It was uh, maybe about a year ago, and there was a time where my oldest, Nathan, um, I was sitting in a chair, and I was blocking his way to get to a drawer. And he came to me, and he said, move, Miss Poo Poo. And I was like, what did you just call me? And he said, move, Miss Poo Poo. And and then I got a little bit more serious at that point. And I was like, what did you say? And all of a sudden, he realized that something is wrong. He's like, move, move, Miss Poo Poo. And I was like, did you just call me Poo Poo? Now, honestly, I should have been upset that he called me Miss, you know, first and foremost. But you know what I did to that little six-year, five, I think, six-year-old child? I took my big fat finger and I pointed it right in his face and I said, don't you ever. Don't you ever. And I didn't just say it once. 
I didn't just say it twice. You know how it goes. I said it until I got exactly the reaction from him that I was looking for. He had the biggest tears that you could ever see from a five-year-old kid. And does he need to be corrected? Absolutely. Um, but this is what I realized. His motive behind the whole thing is that I mean, he was kidding. Again, he needs to be corrected for that. But do you know who was really out of line in the whole scheme of things? It was Daddy. Daddy was the one who was having a bad hair day that day. And so I was sitting down with God one time, and God and I started to get into a little argument. You know how that goes? I don't know why I... No... I ever argue with God because I haven't won an argument yet. But God was like, I don't hear voices, by the way. Um, but God was like, you know, maybe you need to, it's, maybe I shouldn't have caveated that. <laughs> God, was, God was saying, you know, maybe you need to go and apologize to him. And I said, God, 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 listen, I'm the dad here, Okay. If I called you Miss Poo Poo, you wouldn't be apologizing to me, okay? I, I ain't apologizing to anybody. He said, yeah, well, maybe you should apologize to him. I said, listen, why would I on earth go and do something like that? And God just said, well, maybe you should go down and apologize to him. So as a 30, I don't know, six-year-old man or something like that, here I am getting down on one knee to a five-year-old kid, and I just said, Nathan, Daddy was wrong. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And you know what? It, it, it's painful. You know, it's, it's inconvenient. It's embarrassing. It is downright humiliating at times. But let me tell you this. It's a heck of a lot better than the alternative. Because you and I have two alternatives in life. When we go and do something like this, we risk losing the respect of other people. We do, right? When you admit you're wrong, you, you risk losing the respect of that person. But this is what I've come to realize. Isn't admitting he was wrong to his son confessing his sin? Oh, boy. I'd much rather run the risk of losing somebody else's respect than looking in the mirror in the morning and just not really liking what I look at. You want to be a Grinch this Christmas? You want to be a grumpy, cynical, you know, stodgy old man? You go ahead and you do that. Do you want to allow your dumb, your stupid, your selfish pride to ruin all the relationships around you? Go ahead. Be my guest. See, but this is what I've realized. That's just not the kind of life that I want to live. And that's just kind of not the kind of life that God wants for you either. You want your Christmas to be memorable. Do you want to, you want to not hide from those office parties? You want to not duck that family member that's going to be at the thing that you know that they're going to be at? See, the best thing to do is to just go and to humble yourself and to say, God, this is what I understand that as long as I do what's right, as long as I do what you want me to do, Father, the only thing that really matters is that one day that I'll stand before you and that you will tell me, well done, well done, 
good and faithful servant. That's the only thing that matters. Why don't you go ahead and bow your heads in prayer with me? Yeah, um, yeah, we're done. So, uh, yeah, um, was there Christ in that Christmas sermon? About the Grinch and enlarging your heart? No, because he spoke out of both sides of his mouth. He didn't understand what the gospel is and turned the law into the gospel. Turned your sanctification into your justification rather than seeing it for what the Bible teaches it to be. Your sanctification is the result of your justification. And see, this is why I point out the fact that the real battle for having Christ in Christmas isn't being fought at Walmart. It's being fought in your church. It's being fought from the pulpit or being lost in the pulpit. Where God's word isn't rightly divided, law and gospel, sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, true understanding of sanctification, proper understanding of justification. When all that gets mixed up and muddied by somebody who's getting cute and cheeky in their relevance and preaching from the movie The Grinch, but not putting any real study into properly understanding God's word thinking that they know it because well, it's all about you just doing the right thing, right? No, it's not. This guy didn't preach, truly preach, a sound message of Christ and him crucified for our sins and the free forgiveness of sins and the change that occurs in a person as a result of being brought to forgiveness and the and and instead turned your sanctification into the thing that decides whether or not God's going to forgive you. Christ was lost. Christ was missing. This was a Christless Christmas sermon. And that's what I meant. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We do depend upon you and your generous gifts to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Uh, as we approach the end of the year, um, and you consider your year-end giving, would you please also include Fighting for the Faith in your end-of-the-year ministry you know, donations? We truly could use it. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So what you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen. Amen.